Hello and welcome back to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. You have two days, I repeat, just two days to bid on our summer auction. There are a handful of artworks that still currently have no bids, or at least have very few, considering the artists that they're by and the quality of artwork. So head to arsenalpostcard.com because you might just be able to get in there first and grab a bargain. It's something you're going to maybe want to look through, so set aside some time even during this podcast and just browse away. If you listened to last week's episode with Rachel Halford, the CEO of the Hepatitis C Trust, then you'll know why it's important that we push these auctions why we hold them and the importance of where 100% of the proceeds from the auctions go to. So the final episode before the auction ends in, did I mention, two days, Thursday the 9th of July, we have a very special guest in the form of the formidable Maeve Doyle. Maeve is an internationally renowned curator, the artistic director of Maddox Gallery and a broadcaster. She is BBC Radio's art correspondent and Maeve studied at the Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver, Canada and was the owner of London Gallery Doyle de Vere and was at the helm of Mayfair's infamous Bank Robert Gallery which was responsible for the sale of the Banksy mural Slave Labour and Girl with a Balloon which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Maeve has been a friend and supporter of Art and a Postcard for years, so find out which of our artworks she has her eye on in the episode, as well as get to know a bit more about Maeve's background. As someone who has this amazing career in the arts, as a broadcaster and creative director as well. She's super lovely and very intelligent, and you can catch her radio show on Soho Radio, um, it's called A Private View with Maeve Doyle. Um, so do head to artonapostcard.com to look through the cards that we have in this year's auction and follow us as uh, I always advocate for on at Art on a Postcard to keep up to date and be the first to know about anything Art on a Postcard. So don't go anywhere, enjoy the interview and see you next time. Hello. Oh my goodness, there yep. she is. Oh, there she is. Let's just go before we lose it again. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed about all this. I'm so sorry. Don't be. Oh, seriously, it's not you. This could be Westminster uh, Wi-Fi connection. This could be anything. Don't worry. Okay. Um, so there's so much going on. Um, the global corona pandemic of course um but now we also see the black lives matter movement in protests around the world um and i the art the art world is obviously whitewashed and elitist as we've all known um but now it seems like the time that we can't be complicit anymore in allowing that to be the norm so i was wondering maybe as an expert in contemporary art and the art market what black artists or artworks historical or current do you think would be great for any listeners who wanted to broaden and diversify their knowledge of art uh, history or support contemporary black artists well, the most timely piece at the moment would be uh, 
if anyone was in New York last summer and went to the Guggenheim and saw Jean-Michel's Basquiat's defacement, the untold story, uh, a mm. piece that featured the death of Michael Stewart, it was launched to commemorate Michael Stewart, who was arrested for writing graffiti on the New York subway and killed. He mm. died. He was in his 20s. Uh, I think this problem has been around for a long time and it doesn't get solved. So mm. I think historically we need to look at what's going on, why mm. it's going on. Mm. I feel it ties yeah. in with the economy as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, Basquiat is obviously a, a wonderful place to start. And obviously, like you say, was uh, invested in stories that are still to this day being repeated. So. Being repeated. And the death of Michael Stewart is, he was like, to the police, you got me, I tagged. He, he, we're not quite sure how he ended up having a heart attack and dying, mm. uh, but he did. And it took until last year for a museum to commemorate this in a museum show. That was last year. Mm. I think it went on until 2019 in November. And then six, eight months later, here we are again. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about what makes great art, it's possibly the same as what makes great political change. It's uninterrupted time to think and then take action. Mm. So what's happened now is the whole world has had a chance to think mm, mm. And, and to examine. Not everyone. We have key workers. It breaks my heart when I speak in a generalization and I see people every day who've been putting themselves out there. Mm. Uh, but but in, if I may resort yeah. to a generalization, the whole I world has had time that usually is reserved to an artist in a studio or a writer at his desk. Yeah. Uninterrupted thought and contemplation and meditation. Mm. Mm. I mean, that's, again, someone with a kid at home who's having to homeschool is going, I didn't have uninterrupted time. But for the sake of this conversation, I think that we can unite more now than ever before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, we've both been spending this time interviewing artists as well and I don't know about you but I've generally got the gist that uh, for a lot of artists this time isn't so different they're used to being on their own um, they're used to kind of isolating themselves and being in this kind of meditative state as you say in their studio or at their desk um, and I think it has provided others who aren't afforded that time to do the same um, so Maeve, you have had such a vast spanning career. It's been uh, brilliant uh, listening to your, to your podcast and reading about the work that you've done and looking into the galleries. Um, from curating to advising to broadcasting in the arts. Uh, I know that you studied at the Emily Carr University of Art and Design in Vancouver. Were you originally an artist yourself? I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, uh as a teenager moved to London and started working at the London Graphic Centre and then worked at the Hayward Gallery and I had a studio in Bermondsey when the price of a studio was like 30 pounds a week. Mm. Uh, at the time, London was a different place and you couldn't, it was more difficult to study 
and pay for your study through a part-time job, this is a whole other world. I mean, in my, in, when I was doing these things, you weren't graduating with a 50,000 pound debt. It was not as complicated. So forgive any students who hear me now, because it was a, an easier thing to do. But part-time work in London wasn't as prevalent as it is now. So I was taking classes at Chelsea School of Art and St. Martin's and trying to find my way while I was working, while I was having the studio. And I had, basically, I also went to the Ontario College of Art. I mean, if I named you all the schools that <laughs> I went to before, I think at the age of 29, finally committing to uh, Emily Carr. Um, mm. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I mean, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be around artists. I'd had a difficult childhood and I found peace in animals, horses and dogs and in the art world. Mm. And I wasn't mathematically inclined. I was very dyslexic, although at the time it wasn't diagnosed. Right. So I couldn't be a veterinarian. <laughs> so my other option was art school and go into the arts. So I found myself getting stronger, uh, finding people that I like to talk to, mm. uh, feeling more connected in the world. When I was around artists, with artists, doing life drawing classes, mm. uh, making sculpture, I suddenly felt like I had a, a group of people who I could talk to without being told yeah. I was wrong, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So, so from there, I found, I didn't have uh, funding at the time. I didn't have a bursary or independent funding. And this, this challenge of studio time versus be, having to work was always a back and forth. So I started working for and with and about artists instead of as an artist. Mm. Mm. I see. So I didn't want a job. <laughs> to be quite frank, I didn't want to work a job. I wanted everything to sync up. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how did you make that happen for yourself? How did you get into the art world um, and get as involved as you are now? Uh, it was, I took a lot of risks. I mean, right. I took a lot of risks, a lot of uh, rejection. I think one of the good things about an unhappy childhood is that you, you can take rejection very well as an adult because you're kind of used to it. Right. Um, you just get up, dust yourself off and, and go again. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I just kept, kept at it and took whatever opportunities came my way and, um, I think there was a period of a few years where uh, things had happened with my family and I committed to a job doing PR and events for the Hudson Bay Company in Canada. And that was like putting on fashion shows and, um, wow. you know, the Olympics in Italy. I forget the name of the country now, but and that was very corporate. And it was good for me to learn that, but also to realize I didn't, I didn't, people thought that was a great job. I didn't like it right. at all. It wasn't for me. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Did I answer the question? Um, yes, you did. It's, you did. it's great. The, to nice, 
the nice thing is the art world's always changing. So with that, I can continue to change and adapt for yeah. as long as I'm relevant. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, take your podcasts, for instance. Podcasting is obviously boomed um, in the art world. Um, and listening to your the Soho Radio Show, A Private View with Maeve Doyle, um, one episode you might go from speaking about Genesis P. Orridge to Spike Lee to a contemporary artist or current exhibition um, and it's, it's, it's such a wonderfully diverse show and you've obviously got such a breadth of knowledge and speak with such ease and so articulately about cultural figures and happenings. Am I right in some Thank you. Am I... Oh no. Clip, clip that. That was nice. <laughs> it's true. Um, and am I right in surmising that you are a bit of an arts and culture obsessive. <laughs> uh, it's so hard to sum yourself up. Mm. And the things, the lovely things you just said, mm. I don't necessarily feel. I feel like I'm always learning and mm. relearning and there's so much I don't know. Uh, mm. And it, it's, it's um, an obsession is something I feel that has to be cured. Like we, let's draw a parallel to a love life that's with unrequited love. That's a horrible obsession. Mm. Nobody likes that. Or if you have an obsession with an addictive personality, like drugs or alcohol, mm. that's a negative connotation. I find the art world embraces, it just offers me so much. It offers me insight into psychology, it offers beauty, it offers philosophy, it offers social economic politics. Mm. The people involved in it are kind of non-linear in a lot of ways. However, there's other people that merge into it. It's one of the only worlds when we used to have openings where every people who didn't have keys in their pocket because they didn't really live anywhere, but they were artists would be in the same room with billionaires talking yeah. to each other. So obsessive, I don't know, but I do really like the art world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> everything about it. It's my way of making sense of everything. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting you saying about your, your upbringing and obviously, um, with the undiagnosed dyslexia it sounds like the art world sort of provided a uh, a community but also a way of looking and looking at the world and experiencing the world that felt more that you felt more comfortable in um and that resonated with you uh, in a profound way correct mm, mm. and continues to yeah yeah um how do you on a, on a kind of a i guess a bit of a literal and practical note how do you sort of keep so informed and up to date is it reading is it like what's your what's your avenue into the research i live in the center of mayfair i live in shepherd market mm -hmm. so and that was a choice uh, so i all of the galleries and museums are right beside me mm. Um, I do read a lot. I also make sure I see everything. When I go to the movies, I see certain directors' films or, or documentaries because that's what I like. I, mm -hmm. I'm friends with artists. Yeah. I mean, it's, perhaps it's, 
I'm friends with people who work in the art world. I work in the art world. I talk about art on the art shows. So I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's kind of manifested in a great way. I mean, I like, I like what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely. I like who I talk to. I like what I talk about. It's great in that sense. I like London, you know. Mm, yeah that definitely comes across um you can hear how how passionate and enthused you are um when whenever you're interviewing or or discussing a topic and of course you have the the music as well do you curate the music on your private view show yeah i mean in the early earlier days when i think Gemma peppy was on i used to let the guest pick some music tracks Mm. and Gemma's got great taste musically she introduced me to some new stuff but Mm. not everyone um not everyone in the art world is as informed and connected to music as i thought they were so i sort of not everyone liked that task so i sort of took on the music myself and and curated it myself and if i get someone on like Gemma peppy i'll ask her to pick a track but now i don't do it in the same same way i used to do it i where I offer it up to other people, I just do it myself. So in a word, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I guess it, it, it must, if people come to your show expecting to hear a certain type of music and or, or maybe they get accustomed to a certain vibe or something, and then it, does it kind of affect the flow if, if you get an artist who might, I don't know, throw some thrash metal in or something? Well, that's okay too. I think Soho Radio has a man a mandate to maybe not play non-commercial to offer 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 it as a platform for people who don't get exposure on regular yeah. radio stations. So so I try to keep true to that. I don't always manage to get the most avant-garde music, but I do look for it. And right. and frequently you'll find out in the case of Jean-Michel Basquiat or Rodney Graham or Mike Kelly, so many artists are also musicians. Yeah. And so I can I can just instantly John Kay. I mean, I can instantly find work that artists have made, and and it's it opens your mind to listen to what they do and how they play with negative space in sound, and mm. what, what the lyrics are about, or how hip hop informed, or a tribe called Quest and Banksy, and how everything is connected. Mm, mm. It's kind of postmodern in that sense. Maybe you have a quite a postmodern show. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's that's great. I mean, I think one of the things for me that helps musically is I can make links. This goes back to the anti-hypnosis dyslexia. Mm. When I pick the songs, it can I can link into the next story. So for me, the the song will be a trigger to. To what's next on the program somehow i see the link between what i play and what i'm talking about mm. so we're talking about the death of michael stewart right now and yeah. what's going on in the world presently with george floyd so my soundtrack choice would be uh, spike lee's do the right thing because of course it paid homage to michael stewart and it's talking about similar tensions and race relations that has fight the power in it I would play fight the power and that would lead me into the next conversation. Mm, That's such a wonderful way of curating a show. Almost like each one is its own sort of mm, spider kind of diagrammy type interconnected web. That's like neatly kind of contained within an episode. I want you as a guest. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the things you say. This is so great to hear feedback. I don't often hear feedback from people, so thank you. I suppose you're often in, in the other side of the of the interviewing chair, I guess. So <laughs> um, I've been looking into your um your work for Maddox as artistic director and it's Maddox Gallery is such a staple in uh, London's art scene, dealing artwork by, I mean, I should have been aware, but I wasn't aware. But it, it, artworks like Andy Warhol um, have been dealt by Maddox and obviously taking care of work that's massively sought after by collectors like Harlan Miller and the Connor brothers. Um, how do you curate a gallery like Maddox? And I guess what I'm asking is, what's the sort of criteria for an artist that might want to be represented by or looked after by Maddox? So Maddox is very, very young. Mm. It's a four years old, and I think it, it, it's like a, we'll use the animal, it's like a young colt with long legs. And they're... <laughs> trying to find and are finding their feet. And partially it started uh, by looking for a new group of collectors. And that was a, mm. was a search they did via Instagram. Now, when I met Maddox, I was, I was aware of Instagram, but I wasn't as, as aware of it as I am now and its power. And it's the fact that it's a, democratic process and mm. uh, the, 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 you can actually offer people experiences on Instagram and, and it's more powerful than I realized and so I think some of what artists do is they also and this goes back to subtle things with Leo Castelli and Larry Gagosian part of an artist dealer relationship is a mutual respect so when artists and Maddox come together, and I'm not speaking as much about secondary market artists like Warhol and Basquiat, but more new and emerging artists like the Her Story artists or Seth Charmington, there has to be some sort of reciprocal respect. And I think that's, yeah. that's primarily what it is. If there's a reciprocal respect. And then from there, if there's tangibles attached to that, it's great work that reflects you know pop and street art which is what Maddox is known for also having a very good Instagram presence because that's another thing that we're great at uh, and then the third thing is uh, I mentioned an aesthetic that works but the third thing is the ability to articulate your work to mm. have a discourse to help people cross over into what you're talking about. I mean, I'm visually oriented. I can pick up semiotics and signs and I can see what's happening. But if you're brand new to it, and sometimes even me, and Seth Charlton's a case, which I'll get back to in a minute, mm. you need the artist or a few words or the artist to have a conversation with a critic to open up their world to people, to help them understand. And then, and then, uh, just repeating the image enough so that people know to like it. I mean, I can promise you that Warhol's gone through periods in his career where he was not popular and no one was supporting him and he wasn't invited to any of the shows in the galleries and the 
Yeah. Critics weren't writing about him and it was a hard time, but because of the repeat exposure to his imagery, he had the foresight to, to start editions in multiples. We saw his work so often that we grew to like it and respect it and also caught up with his thought process. So I, I got caught in a long conversation about what makes an artist dealer gallery relationship work. And I'm hoping I actually answered the question because it's not ever one thing, but mm -hmm. it does start with a mutual respect. Right, right. The other thing I would say is the art world's very small. So if people can't be phony, you'll hear what someone thinks about you behind your back very quickly. Right. Yeah, definitely. There's that thing of, I guess, authenticity and art are sort of especially like you say with with the inclusion of instagram this like offering up of like your authentic and true self online for everyone to see um i, I feel it, it's something that we almost art kind of demands and requires now do you think that that's correct i i to a certain extent the only word i would trip up on from what you just said is authentic. I think it can be a curated view of what you want the world to see. Mm, mm, mm. I'm yeah. not sure people are really that interested in personal problems of other people. <laughs> or their person. I think one thing Instagram did put an end to is nobody really cares about the intimate details of your life, like take it to a therapist, like let's connect. <laughs> let's yeah. connect as a society and make things about how we, I mean, save the dear diary for dear diary, lock it, <laughs> put it under your bed and keep it to yourself because it's a bigger world with bigger problems and we need to unite and connect and move forward together. Yeah. I, I, you're already an authentic human being. You don't need to prove it to me, I know. Mm. So make us one. Let's unify. Mm, that's so interesting. And I guess as well, you know, like you're saying about the Dear Diary stuff, it's like if you look at the most sort of... Um, uh inspiring artists from art history there's always an element of mystique around them and there's always an element you know like to, Perfect. Me Perfect. to, me to mention basquiat again you know basquiat was uh you know notoriously very difficult to interview he didn't want to give too much away and he would openly say during an interview like you know I, I'm going to say the wrong thing if I if I say what I really think, so I'd rather say nothing. Um, which uh, you know, a, an element of mystique allows the viewer to absorb the artwork without being dictated to about you know every as you know element of what it's about, and you know. Um, You've hit the nail on the head. If mm. if we could say what we needed to say visually in a few words, there'd be no need for painting. Mm, mm. yeah exactly exactly and i love that some artists just won't go there because you can't and so you'll get a trained journalist trying to force them to say something it's not an illustration it's a painting mm. where there's you know, for instance post-war artists were very suspicious and worried about metaphor because metaphor didn't work Mm -hmm. 
it didn't work after the Holocaust. It didn't work after the dropping of the atom bomb. No, but metaphor failed us. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted work that was minimalist and stood on its own as a piece of art. And for instance, you know, yesterday I was talking about Donald Judd, who may have been the first American artist ever. And he wanted materials yeah. like galvanized steel, like copper, like plexiglass, mm. plastic, to have an inherent beauty. How do you put that in words? Yeah. How, do you, how do you put a Donald Judd in words? So the mystique is inherent in the artwork and mm. the artist steps aside, gets out of his own way, doesn't mm. get involved in that conversation. That's for Clement Greenberg. That's for Ryan Sewell. That's for Barbara Rose. Let the critics do that. It's a separate world. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's so interesting what you're, you know, mentioning uh, Donald Judd and even uh, I was I, I actually um, Matthew Collins's series about modern art is now up on YouTube. So I've been watching that, and he he goes to Marfa in in Texas, um, Does he? where he's you know he's transformed that that town into. Yeah, there's a Prada um, there now, isn't there? <laughs> is that? I think so. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, it's it's almost it, it was almost a as much as it was about the artworks it was also a kind of a performance in a sense like displaying the artist sort of like audacity to just go and take something that might otherwise just be seen as you know not ornate and decorative art as we might view it so, as we're saying so much mystique around Donald Judd as well and what he was trying to achieve or it's up to us I think which... it's a, the, the Prada thing was an uh, Elm Green and Drag set parody on Marfa and kind of in keeping with what you're saying. They were... Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And um, I'd like to go back if we can just to what you mentioned um, a little bit ago about the the aesthetic of Maddox. It's got a definite um recognizable aesthetic in in, in who um exhibits there um not 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 na not narrowly um that there is uh obviously diversity there but it generally seems that there is it, it's often urban and graphic references to pop culture and politics kind of gritty um and this uh, genre, this aesthetic, um, it does feel like um, Maddox's mm, output in generally. And I know that you started, or maybe not started, but you were at the helm of the uh, bank robber gallery, which was responsible for potentially the one of the most, or if not the most famous artworks by a living artist, Girl with a Balloon. Um, do you think, did, did the work that you did there, sort of the street art inside, inside a gallery, did that tr transfer over to Maddox with you, that kind of aesthetic? Well, it's certainly how I met the team. I mean, they were collecting at the time mm. and they were definitely around and we were uh, placing, selling work to them and different things. I mean, they were on our radar. Um, they're very different businesses. There's no, there's no comparison. I mean, there's a huge, they're at polar ends of the opposite uh, 
opposite end of how business was done. I mean, bank robbery is very bespoke and very, it was very, there were two of us. And mm. it was, um, had unique opening on I mean, it was almost, you could say, an artist-run business. It was, right. couldn't be more different than Maddox. Uh, but it is funny that it is what led, led the relationship to, mm. to Maddox. So, and they, in fact, uh, took over one of the spaces in Shepherd Market that was the old bank robber. So it's kind of in the, the size of the operation um, th that makes them so different. And I guess potentially how commercial uh, one is more than the other. Um, Business is commercial. I mean, yeah. that, you know, you get, you just, it's either black or white. You're either, no one can pay the rents and rates on a gallery in London, pay their artists and Rep, you know, pay their staff and turn on the lights and not be commercial. It's mm -hmm. just, you, you just can't. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And I guess what really does, what does commercial really mean? I mean, I guess it means art that is sought after by many people or um, <clears throat> art that, I don't know, fits into the mainstream, but then art generally never really does fully because it's always political so i guess it's kind of a hard quality to define commercial anyway other than just something that sells yeah <laughs> um, i like where you're going with this because if you take it back to warhol who we mentioned earlier commercial for him was illustrating shoes for magazines mm. and his fine art was the soup cans because there was a time when artists didn't make a ton of money i mean william de Kooning didn't make any money until he was in his 50s, 60s, I mean, there wasn't, artists weren't always going into it to make money. And so at the time, commercial work meant they were taking a job. Mm. They were either illustrating shoes or cats or doing commercial work. Like I think Rauschenberg did commercial work or Rosenquist did commercial work and then mm. quit to be an artist. So there, there was almost an understanding that an artist wasn't making money. And now the whole world is different. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So the, maybe the word commercial needs to be revisited. I, I don't know. I'm just thinking it through with you as you as yeah. you discuss it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess uh, in terms of, I guess com the word commercial often has negative connotations, I think, because it's linked to this idea of selling out or um, adhering to a, a a mainstream but then that seems kind of reductive if we still want those artists to continue to make as you say the fine art that they make it, it seems like they're sort of there's a double double-edged sword it's kind of you're, you're stuck as an artist if you continue to reject it so then the negative connotations seem a little bit arbitrary or virile um, perhaps yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, uh, someone could potentially write a nice PhD thesis on the topic of <laughs> commerciality and what it means. I can, I can be confident that no one who rents a space, pays staff and pays their artists feels the same way about the word commercial that someone who doesn't. Mm. do those things yeah it's true feels it's about true. it it's true 
Yeah, and it extends to the <clears throat> across the field because I mean, take even um, actors who I'm sure have great intentions of being in terrific uh, plays that are mind-bending, and uh, uh, but often you do an advert for HSBC and you have to keep quite quiet about it, but. Well, and then there's Nan Golden who does bring the shame into it and she was right to do it. She was asking us to question where the money was coming from. You know, when she was taking on the opiate companies and Sackler sponsorship, that's a political statement. So there's, Nan was, nobody, nobody wants a society that's hooked on drugs. Yeah. I had the pleasure of hearing Nan speak at the portrait gallery and she was brilliant and you know, she was addicted to opiates. Of course she was going to rage against it. So she took on the VNA, she took on everywhere. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Um, and, and that was a type of commercial sponsorship that Nan didn't want us to want to go unnoticed. She wanted it to be noticed yeah yeah um so you are also a bbc radio art correspondent um what does that entail and what does it mean to be an arts correspondent how much do you engage with them and, and when you do what kind of work are you doing with the bbc so it, i had a show in vancouver and when i came to london i opened a gallery called Doyle de Vere on Ledbury mm. Road. And I sort of left Canada after getting this financing to open the gallery quickly. Everything happened fast. It was after the Lehman Brothers. As a result of that, I wasn't necessarily sleeping through the night. I was thinking a lot. And I was listening to uh, night radio, which is different than day radio. Because mm. people who listen to night radio <laughs> They may be drinking, they may have mental health problems themselves, and it's call-in shows. So you get a lot of really interesting things happening on overnight radio that are uncensored and different. And mm. I was listening to two of the people that I listened to at the time were friends of mine now, which is kind of interesting. Um, I was listening to Joe Good before she got her daytime show. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was very much like the time it is now where I was connecting to someone in a country that I sort of just didn't have any, any you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Joe visited the gallery and she's like, come on the show. I don't know anything about art. And I'd had previous experience. So um, her listeners are every, like her listeners are daytime radio listeners. So it was, to talk about art in a non-pretentious way. Yeah, right. And it's been wonderful. And uh, working with someone as experienced and kind of good. I think I started with Robert Elms, actually. I think Robert Elms was the first person to ask me on this show. And then mm -hmm. I kind of started becoming a regular on Joe Good's show. And she's very experienced and very good at her job. and. Uh, She'll hit me with questions that are non-art world related. So it keeps me very real. Yeah. Okay. What does she want to know? And then the listeners will call in with their concerns. Like, how do I be an artist? How do I be a, how do I know if I have any talent? So it's, 
it's a nice mm. antidote to everyone being an artist. And <laughs> I love doing the show. I learn a lot from Joe's daytime show. Uh, I then started doing Soho Radio a few years ago, and it is more specialized, let's say, less general. We get deeper into things there. Mm. And maybe it doesn't, maybe it's more arty than Joe's show is. So the two of them are quite satisfying. I like having that balance where you never become too disconnected from yeah. people who aren't in the art world. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of advice would you, on that question, if someone says, how can I be an artist? What would be a, a kind of response that you might give? Make art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you still make art yourself? Do you I have time? Don't, but I mean, I remember, uh, I remember Roy Arden, who's a photo conceptualist from Vancouver, saying to me, when I was just at the point where I was deciding what I was going to do, it's like Maeve has made her life an artwork. And I, mm -hmm. I don't always get along with Roy Arden, but when he said that to me, it was such a gift because I knew what he was getting at. And he was talking about something that's quite real. That's why I can't give anyone a straight line to how I got to do all the things I got to do because I think, Maybe that's what I'm putting my energy into, just manifesting this energy around artists and creating a, a buzz around places like Maddox or bringing new people into the fold or mm. everything that happened with Bank Robber and Girl with Balloon. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, it is very creative. And as you're saying, um, often I think creativity is described as as drawing links between different things that you see and hear so you know your your pop your radio show that's gets converted into a podcast is a is a um a sort of a it's a creative project that you put out every single week so um so, so for instance i'll say this because i really think it's important to draw the link i mm. think probably i'm on this podcast because when i met Gemma pepe and I realized she'd made, she manifested something beautiful out of something that was a problem. Mm, yeah. And she created this art on a postcard universe and everyone got involved. And it, she could have let the hardships in her life consume her. And it was the art world that took her out of it. And she, all this, so in a way, I see Gemma as an artist as well. Absolutely. I know Gemma's had some great times on your show. Um, and, you know, consequently, you've been a great supporter of Art on a Postcard for a while now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know she always has a brilliant time with you on your show uh, discussing, like you say, the, 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 uh, her, her story and where she's come from with art. Um, and how she is an artist in a sense yeah yeah and how do you have you been able to have a look at our summer auction this year i i saw some of it yes i have seen some of it what are you thinking of in particular well i was just wondering if there were any artists involved that you're excited about or any artworks that stand out to you at all well, really involved in i'm really excited about the chapman brothers just because i'm so fond of 
I'm so fond of Jake Chapman. I just think someone who's so mm. up there being also so open. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Antonio Showering is amazing. Molly Brocklehurst is amazing. I think you've taken her on. I did a great yeah. um, podcast with Molly. I love her work. It's that, that memory and forgetting kind of Luke Toyman's look mm. about it is quite incredible. Mm. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how you're going to do this on without an actual space. I know last year you were part of London Photo, which was great yeah 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 i know it's it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out without having a physical exhibition space because we normally we normally always have one of those at least for a week or a weekend it's just been one of my favorite things yeah oh that's so wonderful to hear and it's great to see it happening yeah yeah well Maeve thank you so much for chatting Absolutely with me pleasure. today and if ever there's anything else I can do for you please let me know I'm a massive fan of our women postcard to be in and out of your lives for a long time oh yeah totally well thank you as I say it's it's been so insightful getting to chat to you and um you do so much as you say for the art world and in terms of promoting artists and putting sort of great cultural um information out there so it's great to hear a bit about you and um your background and where you've come from and what you look out for um and uh yeah i, I i'm always excited to see how you're making waves and i think it's yeah inspiring so thank you so much oh rosa please come on sometime you're just <laughs> I... <laughs> a charming lovely person to talk to you've made my morning thank you Aww. so much for having me on the Aww, well, podcast and making it so interesting your questions were difficult but engaging and just i love the chat oh that's great well yeah i i mean i'd love to so <laughs> um hopefully we'll we'll chat soon and um take care um of yourself and uh best of luck with the rest of this strange difficult confusing insightful <laughs> time that we're yes. living in that's the thing take care of yourself and other people so and you took care of me this morning i love this thank you oh thank you so much Maeve. i did too all right then well uh bye rosa take care bye Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye!